Hello, my name is Grant and I'm lead pastor at New Song Church. And once again, it is a privilege to be able to come to you wherever you are and whenever you are connecting with this uh, experience. And I hope that uh, over the next uh, short while, as I, I bring the word of God, that you would feel encouraged and challenged and, and, and really truly find yourself uh, experiencing uh, some forms of community uh, in the midst of this uh, challenging time where isolation is such a problem for all of us. And I really I love the opportunity that we have been offered to gather uh, as we kind of did physically, but to gather uh, through the internet at 9 a.m. It's about as close as we can get right now to a physical presence uh, on this online platform that we're offering at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning. Uh, and I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're a holdout for whatever reason uh, and, and holding back from coming and joining us at a regular kind of rhythm of worship at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, I would encourage you to try it. If you're still on YouTube, then give this one a shot, and I, I guarantee that you will you'll be blessed by the experience. You know, secondly, uh, this is a time when uh, I personally feel a great need to know who is out there. Uh, and we have this set up on nine uh, o'clock on, on Sunday mornings where it's somewhat anonymous. People's presence, people can come and they can watch uh, and engage uh, and remain kind of, you know, in the shadows, uh, hidden uh, from uh, everyone else. And I would just love to know that you are here. I'll be watching, I'm watching this on Sunday mornings. And so I'd like to just ask us to do something. If you've never commented before, or even if you have, uh, all of you who are connecting here this morning, I would encourage you to, to try this. Would you please just type hello or some other message in the chat box so that we can all see you know, who is here. Sometimes, I know personally, uh, there's been times when I've been in a, in a kind of smaller church that I've attended and I've had an opportunity to go to maybe some gathering of Christians, a worship service or something. And it's been so encouraging to see like there's more people out there. And I think it's really important right now to know that there's brothers and sisters who are with us in this journey and who are participating. And so I would invite you to do that just right now. We're going to take a moment, uh, just make a little comment, anything you want to say, even just a simple hello. Uh, let's do that right now.
Thank you so much for commenting. Good to see uh, people are there and that we are participants in this journey together. You know, we're in this Gospel of Mark series and we're calling it This is Jesus because we believe that one of the most important things right now for ourselves, for our church, our community, our world is that people would become acquainted with the person of Jesus. It's our desire that these messages would help us as we listen to the word and as we then kind of live it out in our moments and days, we would find ourselves awakened more and more to who Jesus is and find ourselves stepping more deeply into what we're calling really our apprenticeship with him, his ways, his kingdom. And this is no easy thing. Uh, someone once uh, quite famously said that it's not that Christianity has been tried and found lacking, it's that Christianity has been found difficult and therefore left untried. This is not an easy thing. It is a whole life pursuit uh, and it will cost us if we commit to this manner of living, this way. Uh, but for human beings, there's no greater invitation and no greater freedom for us and no greater joy and hope and purpose and communion than this one with this person, Jesus. And the wonderful truth is Jesus has accomplished every single thing necessary to allow us to actually step in and find and live this life. Nothing stands any longer between us and the perfect holy God, between us, his beloved creatures, and the heart and presence and purposes of God, our Father. We have unhindered access to God through Jesus. So all the things that we're doing as a church are designed to nurture and enable us to engage with the serious business of following Jesus in our time and place, and then to be his witnesses in our community by our ways of living and speaking and purchasing and participating and serving and forgiving. And this is something that we are discipled into that we have to learn and it takes a purposeful, serious engagement with it. So I'm going to pray right now as we begin that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are doing or whatever you have done, you will be met by the one who knows you completely and who loves you eternally uh, right now, today and forever. So let's pray. Father, I simply ask that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to what it is you want to share with us today. You know each one of us so intimately, so perfectly, and you know the next steps that we are to step out upon, and you can give us the courage and the power to do so. so Lord, meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read this text now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, with the expectation that we will meet Jesus here today. So open your Bible if you have one. Or actually, if you're joining us at 9 a.m., there's a Bible tab. You can look up the text there and follow along. And here's what Mark has to say next in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. He writes, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. What might we receive from the loving heart of God through this word for today? Well, the first really obvious thing is this. The people are always drawn to Jesus. People are always drawn to Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark thus far, we've seen this tremendous attraction towards Jesus. Since he started his public ministry, he's kind of become like a magnet for the community, for people wherever he goes. Mark has told us this repeatedly, like, get this idea. People are drawn to Jesus. At the beginning part, four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were asked simply and directly to come follow Jesus. And immediately they left their nets, father, boats, hired men behind and followed him, attracted to him. Mark uses all kinds of adjectives to make this clear. It says in uh, verse 29 of chapter one, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed and the whole town gathered at the door. A couple of weeks, our dear sister and pastor Melody Anderson shared about the time when Jesus in this press of crowds took off alone to pray into the wilderness and his disciples come to him and, and say, where have you been? Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. And then again, the leper incident last week, chapter uh, one, verse 45 says, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Even in the presence of this veiled, somewhat hidden Lord and King of the kingdom, even the demons appear, although not for the same reasons as people coming to Jesus, but rather like the Texas cockroaches that were startled by the light that I mentioned a few weeks ago. They arise in the presence of Jesus with fear and with pleading. Mark accentuates this truth that the people are drawn to Jesus. This is an unstoppable draw that Jesus has for people by telling us that people are willing to break every rule and regulation and social etiquette to get to him. The leper came boldly up to Jesus, completely disregarding the rules of his day that governed these interactions with non-infected people. He was not meant to do that in that social context. That was a dangerous and bold move. And yet he came. These four men in today's text come and they tear a great big hole in the roof of the unfortunate householder whose pleasure it was for his dwelling to be chosen for Jesus's preaching session that day. They come, they, they take uh, extreme measures to get their friend to Jesus. Some people come under their own steam, they come, and others are brought to that place of connection by their friends who love them. And now in this text, we see the very same thing. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he was home. They gathered in such large numbers, the place was jam-packed. These words, he had come home, are so compelling. Jesus had come home. He'd been away and now he enters in home. Jesus has come. So the people flock to his side looking for home themselves. 
They want to be where he is. A question, are people still drawn to Jesus? Are people still drawn to Jesus? In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself made this incredible statement talking about after he was crucified. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is after, he says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is post, he has, he has taken care of the sins of the world and then he has raised from the dead and he has gone and ascended to be with the Father and he's now interceding for his people and it says even more so people will come. So I, the question is, do you feel drawn to Jesus? Do you feel this? Have you ever felt drawn to the person of Jesus? Is that why you attend church? Is that why you listen to this online experience? Is that why you read and pray the Bible? Is that why you serve others? It's something to do with this, this yourself, your, the most true things about you being drawn out with this sort of longing. And maybe you're not really aware of it, but might I suggest that the general sense of restlessness and dissatisfaction with life and its material gifts that I know that you often feel may be evidence of a longing and a need for this relationship a thirst yet to be quenched, a hunger yet to be satisfied. St. Augustine, a long, long time ago, wrote in one of his books called Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. People of all kinds everywhere are drawn to Jesus. But as this text tells us, and Mark's going to continue to illuminate this throughout his story, his telling of the gospel, there are many obstacles to coming to Jesus. So let's think about this. What obstacles can prevent people coming to him? That we see particularly in this text today. And I think the first thing is perhaps it's our assumptions about Jesus, our assumptions. I think so often people, especially people who've been around Christianity for much of their lives, and in America, this still remains true. We're still very much a, a, you know, a Christian kind of saturated country. They read uh, or hear about the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection, the teaching, etc., of Jesus with a sense that they already know what they will find there who they will find there. They have some pretty formed ideas of who Jesus is already. And I think that's really tragic that our assumptions would become an obstacle from coming to Jesus, to explore who this person may be. For we are actually meant to come to Jesus with an expectation of something brilliant, something truly profound and life-changing and something so fitting to who we are as human beings. As the Apostle John begins his gospel about Jesus, he begins this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is talking about Jesus, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John says. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is mysterious language. It's talking about Jesus and these people's genuine encounter with him. A huge vision is here waiting to be discovered. And Mark, the one whose gospel we are camping out in, similarly points to this kind of amazing truth about the person of Jesus. His very first words are the beginning. 
So there's, there's more, right? It's, there's more to come. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So much more yet to be discovered. You know, assumptions. There's a pattern in, in Mark's gospel that is repeated here in this text from what we've read so far. And it's really, the pattern is sort of this. There's assumptions about Jesus and they're kind of, then they kind of meet this baffling reality of who he actually is that results in the surprise of the crowd. It's almost like you could do just a, a short skit of, you know, assumption, reality, experience, surprise and awe. And in this text and the ones that are before, the crowds gather to seek what they believe it is that they need, what their greatest needs are. And then Jesus blows the minds of all this, all the assembly. Um, you know, it's important to realize that, that Jesus is not a set of principles to be studied and mastered, but rather he is a person, a person of infinite life who is to be encountered, experienced, and pursued in community with fierce, active devotion because there is always more. And when we begin with assumptions and we let these become rigid and concrete, they will become obstacles to our coming to Jesus, not as we think he is or hope he is, but as he actually is. And we create an image of him that has got more to do with who we are than to do with who he is. Assumptions. So that's kind of prior to, right? We have assumptions about Jesus before perhaps actually encountering him that may be obstacles, but we can also meet with obstacles on the journey with him too. And this can be true of us, our entire walk with Jesus. You know, perhaps our false expectations can be obstacles. Right back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we hear this great little story about John the Baptist, who, who's a forerunner, an announcer of the coming of the king. And he calls the people out and they flock to him. They're hungry. And they flock to him and they're baptized in the River Jordan. And he gives this amazing, enthusiastic, wonderful, mysterious description of Jesus, the one who is coming. So he has expectations, right? And he says, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then interestingly enough, later on, and then Mark doesn't share this bit of information, but a couple of the other gospel writers do. They tell this story about John the Baptist. It says that he is wondering, he's been arrested, he's in prison. He's wondering why that is happening to him. If Jesus is this powerful one to come, that's going to set up this kingdom. And so he sends some of his followers to talk to Jesus. And here's what it says in John chapter seven. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What kind of someone else? Someone probably more in alignment with their expectations and sometimes, as we saw last week, as I explained my own kind of personal journey with my expectations, my hopes, my wants, my wish list, right? Jesus doesn't act like we want him to or expect him to, and thus becomes an obstacle. I want to say that last week's ultrasound that I had came back normal. Praise God. But the quest for answers continued, continues. And God is so very good in the midst of the journey. But, I, but my expectations are often just... They're, they're just not met. So there's some expectations in this text that we see. Doesn't seem a bit blind of Jesus, a bit emotionally unintelligent 
to respond to this man's condition, okay? He's paralyzed and his friends like ultra heroic going the distance measures, right? They get up, up the stairs at the side, tearing through the roof, lowering him down, all the effort and exertion just for Jesus to tell the man that his sins are forgiven. That's not really living up to expectations here, Jesus. Does it seem a bit rude to ask to tell this man, seemingly accuse this paralyzed man of having sins that need forgiving as the first step? Jesus' response, your sins are forgiven. You know, last week we didn't actually go into part of the story about the leper and Jesus' responses to him. <clears throat> but uh, let's just read a bit again. It says, a man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does it say? It says, Jesus was indignant. And he reached out his hand and touched the man, I'm willing, he said, be clean. It's sometimes interesting to me that the text of the Bible does not give you the tone of voice of the characters involved there. And sometimes, but, you know, sometimes we see things like indignant. And, and um, so I looked at the different translations. Indignant, that seems really unlike Jesus. What's he doing? Indignant. Uh, the CEB, the Contemporary English Bible says incensed. Um, we had a really great chat about that, by the way, in the lobby. Uh, one of our elders actually raised the question of this indignant thing. And, and so we had our own little side conversation. I'd encourage you to join in there because we have some good conversations about things that we don't necessarily have time to talk about during the, during the message. But you know, this is a dignity thing. I'm not really getting the warm and fuzzies from that word, Jesus. What's that all about? You know, actually, when I was studying, I kind of did my best to remove that word from the record. I don't like that. That's not what I expect from Jesus being faced with a man who is so marginalized and, and hurt. Some copies of the New Testament actually take it as filled with compassion, which is how I saw it. But it's not clear. And judging by the context, Jesus does seem very stern here. It says after that, that after he had healed this man, he said, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Do not tell anyone about this. And of course, the man failed to do that. I don't like to hear that about this aspect of Jesus, unless, of course, he's talking to somebody else, somebody I don't like, perhaps. You know, this is incredibly serious stuff. Our expectations can become just very rigid, very strong and become an obstacle to us actually engaging with Jesus, not as we wish he was or expect him to be, but as he actually is. Jesus says what he means and means what he says and does what he comes to do. Sometimes we don't think that Jesus is doing what was promised on the packet when we signed up for this thing and we want a refund Sometimes we don't like where our apprenticeship with him takes us. So here's something to remember about this. You know, the stories you hear about captains and colonels and soldiers and kind of things that say, like, I would never ask my men to do anything that I would not do myself. And there's never been more true than it can be, than it's true about Jesus. We look at his life and we're going to see it in Mark, that he took the hard path. He took the path of sacrifice and suffering in obedience to, uh, to his father, God. And it seems almost like his expectations and his assumptions were confounded. And I don't know how all that works as far as him being God and being human, but... It's a real, true human journey and he has already gone there and experienced that for us. So it does not need to be an obstacle. It actually should be expected that our assumptions and our expectations will be confounded by this infinitely wise and, and uh, purposeful and full of personality in life, Jesus. Um, 
What about the next, the next thing in obstacles? Okay, this is the greatest obstacle, both in this passage and I believe in life, as people are being drawn to Jesus. And if you could kind of like picture that, what might be the biggest wall, barrier, obstacle? And unfortunately, I think it is this. It's religious institutions religious institutions and being part of one, you know, and leadership and, uh, you know, all that stuff and having gone to school and spent a lot of my time, you know, uh, uh, you know, participating and seeking to be part of, this is kind of hard to think about. You know, like the previous passage about the leopard, there is in this story the involvement in some way of the religious establishment of Jesus's day. You know, earlier we see the leper was told by Jesus, go to the temple, okay, over there, go to the temple, show yourself to the priest. Well, here, the scribes now, these teachers of the law, the residers of the temple, the temple dwellers, right, are fully present here now to witness the forgiving of this paralyzed man. And they have something to say about it. It's like these people have kind of crept in. Mark's a skillful, skillful storyteller. It's like these people have crept in from the periphery of Mark's, Mark's vision of Jesus's life and they're creeping in. They've moved from a distant potential to an actual fully present uh, uh, presence here now. And sadly, as we will see in the rest of Mark's gospel, religious institutions are often the biggest obstacle for people coming to Jesus. What kind of light does this text shine on the obstructing world of institutional religion? Well, the first thing is that religious institutions abhor mess and seek conformity. They hate mess. They seek conformity. And unfortunately for this situation, that's not really how God works in the human realm. The process of salvation and transformation is Nothing if it's not very messy. I often compare, and the Bible compares, so I'm in good, good ground here. This process is like growing up from childhood through adolescence and into uh, adulthood, uh, and especially puberty. That's a messy, messy, weird time of all kinds of complications and emotions and everything, right? It's very much like this organic process of maturation, and, and it's messy. And here in the first half of this text is the mess in full effect. Church is happening in this home, and look at it. The press of the crowd, the strange looking and I imagine strange smelling hordes of Jesus seekers and they still come and they come and they come. And then we get to this point after a few verses of, of an interruption. And what is it that interrupts the story? And what is the quality of that interruption? Well, it's something that's not happened in any of the healing stories yet in Mark until this moment, something has shown up. And it's this, it says in chapter two, verses six and seven, now... Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's what they did, right? They're the teachers of the law. They were the evaluators and investigators of what was right and wrong in terms of religion. They were the ones who determined and categorized and counted up the sins of others. And this interruption of their ordered business was most upsetting and most unwelcome. They actually, uh, there's a term for this section of Mark that we're going to be in, because this is going to start happening a lot. Mark skillfully puts these all in the same place. Even though they may have happened at different points, he gathers them together to tell us really important things about these people and their relationship with Jesus. And they're called controversy dialogues. And there's, there's four or five of them here. And they culminate at the end of Mark chapter three in verse six, where it says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might 
kill Jesus. How they might kill Jesus. So that's the first thing. They abhor mess. They seek conformity. And Jesus, in his relationship with people, welcomes all of the fully human presence of these people and he meets them right where they're at. And he has this great capacity for doing that. You know, he asks them questions and he, he shares thought-provoking parables and ideas and thoughts with them. And it, it's so alien to the way that the religious institutions were working in that day and also, unfortunately, still work in our day. The second thing is this obstacle. Religious institutions demand proof of God's forgiveness. Often, religious institutions demand proof of God's forgiveness. You know, sometimes we have people in our communities who are fully forgiven, fully forgiven. Them and Jesus, they are good. They are good and they're on a journey and they're being drawn every day. Yet still, they cannot seem to find a substantial place in the heart of our church communities because of whatever aspect of their life is still messy whatever that might be, they've got a potty mouth, they've got some bad habits, some weird beliefs, etc. The dominant culture in the church, uh, perhaps even only subconsciously, makes a determination about this and the signals are sent out almost imperceptibly, but it hurts people and it keeps on the outside. In our story here, the forgiveness part received nothing but criticism. When Jesus said, your son, your sins are forgiven, that's when the trouble came skepticism, suspicion from the religious professionals. I actually think in the story that when Jesus proclaimed this man's forgiveness, at that moment he was healed. At that moment he was healed, but yet he still lay on the mat, perhaps surprised by this renewed strength that was coming to his body, but he had been forgiven. But yet he lay there, and because he lay there, the the leaders were like, this is fake. He is not forgiven. Look at him, he's still paralyzed. He's lying here. This is a fraud. And look at this chaos going on. This is not right. Yet when the man gets up to walk, Mark writes, this amazed everyone, everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Everyone surely includes these scribes, these leaders, these religious teachers. They were shocked. And now it made sense and they praised God. Well, praise God now this man is up and he walks and he goes, are you really saved is he really that's suspicious. You know, he seems like a backslider. It's kind of things we say sometimes. They're so harmful to people. As I mentioned last week, I think that so often when we read Bible texts, we have to make a choice about who we identify with in the story. And last week, there's really just two characters, except for the faraway priest that was Jesus and the leper. Kind of a bit egotistical, perhaps, to identify too quickly with Jesus. So the leper is the only other option. In this story, there's other people you could identify with. You could identify with the four men who were so desperate for their friend's healing that they broke through the roof. You could identify with the paralyzed man himself. Uh, but you could also identify with these religious teachers And we don't like to do that. We don't like to do that. We don't like to identify with the bad guy. And and there's no reason at all why I would not, though, consider myself uh, as seeing myself reflected in the actions of these people because I am part of the establishment, the institutional church, the religion. And and it leads us to have to ask a very painful and challenging question of ourselves. At our church... Have we created obstacles? Do we create, do we prop up persistent obstacles that prevent people coming to Jesus? 
People, Jesus draws people to himself. And it seems in this passage and much of all of the gospels that the biggest impediment, obstacle to the people doing so is the people of God themselves. The established, the insiders, the ones who understand the language and the rules and they know what to do and when to do it. And they make a mess here. Have we or do we interrupt this beautiful, messy, complicated dance between Jesus and the beloved people whom he draws to himself? Do we discourage mess and thus encourage dishonesty, duplicity and inauthenticity? Do we require concrete proof that meet our criteria for someone to be authenticated as saved, redeemed, forgiven and worthy of full inclusion and participation? I think we often do. We don't mean to sometimes, but I think we do. I want to tell you about one of the best worship services I ever attended, actually participated in. It's a number of years ago. I mentioned this trip before because it was very profound for me. It was in San Francisco, <coughs> taking a, a bunch of teenagers, including my daughter, to go serve in uh, Skid Row, San Francisco, through with City Impact. Um, and so we had uh, different blocks of time that you were, different groups were meant to be going and doing different things. And one of them was uh, the, a worship service. And, you know, I was wondering why, you know, okay, we're going to attend a worship service. Well, we get there, 8, eight o'clock in the morning, 8.30 in the morning, things about to start at 9 o'clock, whatever it was. Doors are shut, you know, and they're like, the leader there, been doing this with tons of groups over years, you know, and it's like, okay, uh, who wants to speak today? And we're like these stunned teenagers. And I'm like, oh, not me. I need time to prepare, right? This, the most unlikely kid, there's two of them actually. One of them was the most unlikely kid you'd ever think to ever want to speak in public, raised his hand and said, I'll speak. And then who, who can lead worship? And immediately all the kids' fingers pointed to me because I could play guitar. So they were like, okay, we're going to do this. Here's how it's going to go. We're going to, the food will be food for the folks afterwards. Um, uh, you guys speak and then you do songs. What songs are you going to do? So I'm scrambling my phone trying to find the chords for songs and things and trying to do it. And I think my daughter was going to sing with me and um, handed me this like really badly out of tune guitar, just, you know, substandard to what I've been used to as a worship leader, right? And uh, the equipment was not great, trying to figure out how to get the feedback away. But, you know, we, we kind of rushed into this thing and then they opened up the sliding doors and all of humanity from Skid Row poured into this building and took their places in their seats. Uh, and it, it seriously was just felt a bit chaotic to me, you know. But there was there was something about it that was so profoundly beautiful. There was genuine emotion from these people, genuine engagement with the heart of God. It felt like people were actually worshiping from out of a place of desperate need and hunger for God. It was so messy. This disheveled congregation whose sins and failures were just like front and center in their clothing and the, and the smell in the room, etc. right? These unqualified preacher young people talking about God, just sharing their testimony, the substandard musical instruments and not enough time to rehearse. And I tell you, the kingdom of God was present and it was beautiful to behold. But yeah, I have to say my religious institutional bent was severely tweaked that day because that's not how it was supposed to be. But it was a beautiful moment and it was really, really messy. So, so what can we think about this as, as we start to wrap it all up, hopefully tie some things together? The first thing I want to say is wherever you are, come to Jesus. Wherever you are, 
whatever you are, whatever you are doing, whatever you have done, whatever your assumptions and expectations, just come to Jesus and he will take it from there. But I'll tell you, he will then confound your assumptions and he will fail to meet your expectations and it will be glorious. It will be glorious. So come to Jesus. It takes a simple initial ascent to say, I want to come to you, Jesus. I, want, I don't know. I'm not going to assume. I'm not going to expect. I know I need something more and I don't even know what that is, but I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. I want to follow you. I want to know you. Here's some thoughts and some confidence in coming to Jesus. The first thing is, it seems clear from this passage and others that he knows us perfectly and yet he extends the invitation. If you know, you know, if you knew me as well as I know myself, you may think I'm not worthy of an invitation by Jesus, but he fully invites me and he fully invites you. You know, Jesus seems to have known for some reason that this paralyzed man who was lowered down, the greatest problem for him was not his paralysis, but was his need for forgiveness. And perhaps actually the paralysis drew out from this deep shame and guilt that this man had been living with to the point that his inner life had started to be manifest on his outer life. And he was immobilized by his shame and his guilt. And Jesus knew it. And he offered him that thing that he needed. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. How did Jesus know what the religious leaders were thinking in their hearts? He knew them. He knew them and he offered them a chance to come to him by challenging their thinking. He offers us, secondly, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. You know, it's, it's, it's forgiveness. I think in our modern enlightened age, sin is out of fashion, right? We don't talk about sin. It's not a pl- pleasant thing to talk about. It's not helpful. People don't like to say, well, you're a sinner, but you know, sin may be out of fashion, but sinning is not. Sinners are not. And we carry that guilt and that shame and we need a place to put it and take it. And one of the most important key verses in this passage is this. Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. That's lived out. That's the blood, sweat and tears of our daily existence on earth to forgive sins. To forgive. He brings us the greatest gift we could ever have to be unburdened from this guilt and this shame and come to God and then start to live in a a place of life and light and joy and community. Third thing, his is the voice we must listen to. His is the voice we must listen to. There are many obstacles, all kinds of voices, but Jesus has the authority and he is sovereign. And I love this. Two things that he says here are so perfectly what Jesus speaks. The first is this. He says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Why does he call him son? It's just this glimpse through Jesus of the Father's heart saying, you're like my son. This is before he's forgiven, right? Son comes first, forgiveness comes next. The relationship leads to the, to the forgiveness and that just release of God's favor and love. Secondly, another thing he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. I tell you, all this man's life, he's probably been hearing all kinds of reasons why he deserved it. Sin and sickness were very connected in those days. I think sometimes they might be too now, but in that day, definitely, if you were afflicted and sick, you are most likely had done something to, to displease God. And so Jesus steps into all of those voices and, and pushes them all away. And the single voice that man hears is Jesus. He says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go where? Go where? Go home. We're longing for home. 
our conference for being a spiritual community. You know, having said all I have said today and all that we see in scripture and all we see in the American church and it's, you know, it's a strange, uh, unfortunate relationship with politics and nationalism and all that stuff uh, and um, not excluding our own fellowship. We've got to be very aware of our own faults. Is there really any point in this thing we call church, this institutional gathering we call church? Well, actually, here's the thing. It is the point. The church is actually God's vehicle for transformation, but we must always be alert to the potential for the very community that's supposed to be the representation, the body of Christ on earth, that those who are coming to Jesus will be helped along the way by the church um, can actually become the exact means of shutting down the sweet and sacred conversations that are happening all around us between people and Jesus, and the people whom he has forgiven and whom and who need to know about it. So a few thoughts about our church and church in general. First thing, you're part of it and you're messy. Don't be afraid of the messy stuff in your own life, in others' lives. Jesus is working through it all. He's working through it all. Seek Jesus with all your heart as a priority. Let's be careful of judging the spiritual state of others. Give people time, give people space, give people patience. There's a popular saying that says, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I heard a much better version of that. I think it's very helpful to us as we think about people who are, who are clearly broken and, and acting in all kinds of ways, right? And it's this, love the sinner and hate your own sin. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. You're the one who is called to deal with Jesus about your own mess and you have plenty of it, my friends, and I do too. There's plenty to be going on with and, and let Jesus take care of others around them and, 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 and be careful how we treat other people as inside and outside because we talk in New Song Church about this concept of belonging and believing and behaving and that's so important. We truly want people to feel that they can belong here just as they are. And that, and that we, all the things that we do, uh, we're inviting God in to have this conversation with them which hopefully we can facilitate, which might help them in their sense of belief and behavior. But, but God's in charge of that. The Holy Spirit's been doing this for a long time and he doesn't really need our help, but he invites us to participate in what he's doing in our lives and the lives of others in what is called the church. It's simply just a community of sinners seeking God together, humble and aware of our own failures, uh, but also so fully aware of the grace and goodness and power and presence of, of Jesus, the one in whom we put our trust. So let's, let's act on this. I hope this has been helpful to you. And we want to have practical steps. So, you know, uh, join us in the lobby. Let's have a conversation about this. This stuff's important, you know. We don't know how many more days we have. Don't delay. Come along and, and just join with this community. Let's have a conversation about where this hits us, where this impacts us, and how we might move forward together in making this more of a reality. Second thing is Ash Wednesday. This week, sign up. Don't think about it. Just sign up to come and talk with one of the pastors and go through this process. As we begin the season of Lent leading up to Holy Week, we want to see our rhythms of life conform to the life of Jesus and his times and, and kind of the church calendar. Uh, we have our own particular Christian rhythms of life and this is part of it. And then uh, uh, as well as, or, or you know, whatever, if you can't make it in the afternoon, come at seven o'clock and let's join together uh, for, for a time together of worship and experience together of Jesus with communion. Um, 
So God bless you. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come and speak with you today. And I pray that, that God has, uh, as we hope for at the beginning, had this expectation that he's going to meet you and speak with you in ways that are beyond what I can say. Uh, God bless you and take care and we'll speak again soon.